1: No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to another episode of Broadway Nation, the podcast that tells the remarkable story of how immigrants, Jews, queers, African-Americans, and other outcasts invented the Broadway musical and how they changed America in the process. I'm David Armstrong and I call this episode The Craft and Art of Broadway Choreography Part 1. This is the first half of my recent conversation with author Liza Janero, whose new book is titled Making Broadway Dance. Liza is currently the Dean of Musical Theater at the Manhattan School of Music, and prior to that, she had a very active and successful career as a dancer and choreographer on Broadway and at prominent regional theaters all across the country. Most notably, she choreographed the hit Broadway revival of Frank Lesser's The Most Happy Fella*. She also grew up with an unusual firsthand view of the craft and art of Broadway choreography. As she writes in the introduction to her book, Liza came to her love and interest in musical theater dance genetically. Her father was Peter Gennaro, the Tony Award-winning choreographer and star dancer of Broadway musicals and countless TV variety shows. And her mother, Jean Gennaro, was a ballerina-turned-Broadway dancer who danced for Bronislava Nijinska, Agnes DeMille, and Michael Kidd. Appropriately for the final day of Women's History Month, this episode focuses largely on two female choreographers, Catherine Dunham and Agnes DeMille. I have said that DeMille is arguably the most important woman in the history of the Broadway musical, not including the star performers, of course, and she's received quite a bit of focus on previous episodes of this podcast. But I am especially happy today to shine our spotlight on Katherine Dunham, whose influence on Broadway dance, like that of many other Black artists, has often been overlooked and undervalued. However, her impact and significance cannot be denied. Here we go. Welcome, Liza Gennaro. Thank you so much for being my guest today on Broadway Nation. So great to have you.
0: Thank you so much for having me. I'm delighted to be here.
1: I thoroughly enjoyed reading your new book, Making Broadway Dance, and it's one of the few books that really takes an overview of what you and I, I know, both agree is one of the great American art forms and one of the most important aspects of that art form. Yeah. How did you come to write this book?
0: Pretty much exactly for the reason you just stated. There's not really another book that digs into the degree that I do, into the analysis of what specifically the musical theater course choreographer's job is and how that's different from other choreographers and what the methods are and how the methods have changed over the years. And what exactly is that task? How does it tie in dramaturgy and character analysis and script analysis and understanding of time, place and character? I had gone to graduate school and I had gone late in my career after I had a professional career as a performer and then a choreographer. And as I'm looking at the literature, you know, it wasn't there. So I really felt that because there wasn't a book that did address those issues and those jobs, really, I thought, well, I'm, I might as well write it. So I did.
1: <laughs> like so many things, we find something that isn't there and then we decide we have to create it ourselves because right. there's, who else is going to do it? Exactly. Although you would think there would be lots of other people doing this in a way.
0: Yeah, I think with musical theater dance, there's a prejudice, it was certainly in the dance world. And in the dance studies world, it's really been looked at as the ugly stepsister. It's the kind of this side thing that people who have real careers as choreographers sometimes do to make some money. But I think what that dismisses and doesn't consider is that it's not easy to do. And not everybody can do it and that there's a very specific set of methodologies that go into how to approach choreographing in the venue of the musical theater.
1: I thought that was really interesting. You wove that through the book, what it takes to be a choreographer for musical theater. What are some of those things that are specific to that job that may be very different from other kinds of choreography?
0: Well, concert choreographers, ballet choreographers, first of all, they're in charge. So the entire idea and the setting and the costume, and if there is a story or if it's an abstracted based in some level of methodology, like Merce Cunningham or someone like that, They are really completely in control. Whereas musical theater choreographers enter a world in which they are handed a predefined script. The director is always in place. Often designers are already in place. Concept has already been discussed often. And then the choreographer has to come in. Even if you come in early, you're still not the first one at the table. And then you are trying to translate the ideas of the libretto into movies. Ideas And how can dance enhance the characters, the plot, the narrative? And that's a process that requires a lot of research into the time, place of whatever the show is. But it also requires thought processes and decision making regarding what kind of dance am I going to use in this production that's going to tell this story? And is it going to be appropriate to the time and place or is it going to be outside of the time and place? And am I commenting in some way? Am I using dance as a metaphor? On and on, all of these things are considered. And then you're not often working with dancers. So you're often working with you know, singers, actors, singers who move very well. Or don't. (laughs) Or don't, exactly. How do I get these people to use their bodies as a storytelling tool? You have to be adept at working with actors and singers. If these are people who don't have an enormous amount of dance training, how do I make them look like they do? How do I make them look good? So that's also a skill of putting your ego aside. And it's no longer about me and what I can do with fancy dance vocabularies, but what's the essence? of the movement vocabulary that I'm using and how can I put it on this individual on this body and make them look natural and comfortable doing it. So that's yet another skill that's required.
1: One way to sort of summarize all that is you have to tell the story. Yeah, Is first and foremost, the job. You and I both have known of choreographers who were not cut out to do musical theater because they could not make that the priority over the dance elements.
0: Yeah, and I think that, you know, in the 40s, Ballet and even early American modern dance was, even if it was abstracted narrative, there was a narrative element to it. That was a really hot period for the Broadway choreographer because those modern dance concert ballet choreographers really transitioned very easily into musical theater. As you get into the 50s and the 60s, and you've got Merce Cunningham and you've got the Judson choreographers, and everything now is becoming abstracted and non narrative, and narrative becomes enduring. Dirty word in the modern dance world. It makes sense that those people no longer transitioned easily into musical theater until I think we get to Bill T. Jones with Spring Awakening. And by then, musical theater has embraced some of those ideas that are more non-linear. that you don't have to be so true to time and place. Sometimes you work completely opposite them. That really gave an opening for people like Bill T. Jones and Stephen Hoggett to enter the field. And that's kind of what we're seeing now. Now we're seeing a kind of a mix of everything, but we're certainly seeing these choreographers who are not specifically trained in how to do narrative dance, making great success on Broadway with a new kind of dance, which I think is extremely exciting
1: let's go back to the beginning because I found the first chapter really fascinating. I'm always interested in those choreographers from what I call the silver age of Broadway, the pre-Golden Age. One thing you noted in there, which relates to what you were just saying, is that they were telling the stories from the very beginning, even though that's not sort of the general way we think of them.
0: Yeah, people like Seymour Felix and Sammy Lee, they were already working with a book. I mean, I found research in which Seymour Felix specifically wrote a lot about it in Dance Magazine, which still existed back then.
1: Choreographer Seymour Felix was born in New York in 1892, and he was dancing professionally in vaudeville by the time he was 15. Between 1923 and 1933, Felix choreographed 15 Broadway musicals, including the long-running hits Artist and Models, Peggy Ann, Hit the Deck, Rosalie, and *Whoopi*. He then moved to Hollywood, where he worked into the 1950s, creating dances for dozens of films. And he's one of only three choreographers to win an Academy Award during the brief period in the 1930s when Best Dance Direction was included as a category.
0: And he would specifically say that he was interested in working with the book and creating dances within the book. I think, though, another interesting part of that first chapter is the erasure of the Black choreographers who were so seminal in developing what was jazz on Broadway. And then you had people like George Balanchine coming in and fusing those really authentic jazz forms with ballet, and then it begins to morph and turn into something else. I felt that was very, very important to establish those choreographers who really were erased from the history and very hard to even research because there's very little written about them. And to the degree that could happen, recapture them, as did Marshall and Gene Stearns in their book, Jazz Dance. I think it was written in the 60s. They did a wonderful job with some of that. So I just wanted to expand on that and to position it in the book so that it wasn't forgotten. In what everybody thinks of as, oh, Agnes DeMille invented the, you know, narrative dance and the musicals, which was not true. She did many phenomenal things, but she was not the first to do the narrative.
1: Who are some of those Black artists, both men and a lot of women, that we should know about?
0: Yeah, well, they are names that people won't know. Herbie Harper, Lawrence Diaz. Because what would happen is they would choreograph the show and then the white producers would come in and they would replace them with white choreographers and they would pay them off or just dismiss them.
1: But their choreography
0: stayed in the show. But their choreography stayed in the show, yeah. So it's racism, obviously. And it was a great loss because they didn't have the kind of opportunities that they should have had to continue to develop their work. What would have happened if Balanchine hadn't appropriated jazz, or even if Balanchine had appropriated jazz, but what if there was also this other line of dancing that was happening that really continued to come through the authentic roots of jazz dance? I really felt that that was important to include and then as you get later, you get into Catherine Dunham, who as a black woman was very much erased until recently. There's been enormous about her writing about her and several books. And she was working with the African diaspora. She trained as an anthropologist and she did her field work in Haiti and she studied the dances of Haiti and then went on and expanded and moved into dances of the African diaspora. That was her project. And she had considerable success and had a school and trained many of the choreographers, white choreographers as well. My father, Peter Gennaro, came out of the Dunham School. And the school was really interesting. Eartha Kitt came out of the school. Marlon Brando and James Dean were studying at the school. It was a very exciting place in the 40s. It was short lived, but it was not only the arts, it was also academic and you could receive academic scholarship training in dance. So she was very unique and very, very important and often gets pushed aside for Jack Cole. Jack Cole was also extremely important, but he was not the first and he was not the only. And in fact, people say, well, Jack Cole, he codified a technique for jazz, which, you know, sort of, kind of, maybe, but really Dunham was doing it earlier in terms of looking at isolations and movement patterns. Sometimes they say, well, he was the first theatrical jazz Choreographer, which is also not true because you had all these wonderful black choreographers in the 20s, and Dunham.
1: Catherine Dunham appeared in nine productions on Broadway, and in all of them, she both performed and choreographed. The first was the 1940 musical Cabin in the Sky, in which she performed the featured role of Georgia Brown, and her dance company, billed as the Dunham Dancers, appeared in three major ballets and dance sequences that she choreographed in collaboration with George Balanchine. The other eight shows were reviews and dance concerts that featured Dunham and her company, including one called Concert Varieties, in which only two works were featured on the bill, one by Jerome Robbins and the other by Dunham. Her last two appearances on Broadway were billed simply as Katherine Dunham and her company.
0: So she had an extensive career, and it was storytelling and dance as well. So she's really very, very important to Broadway and as a training system, which is still used for choreographers and dancers today.
1: Don't go away. Broadway Nation will be back right after this quick break hi this is David Armstrong and it's my great pleasure to welcome factor as a sponsor to Broadway nation this week this spring you can eat stress-free with factors delicious ready-to-eat meals every fresh never frozen meal is chef crafted dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes you can choose from a weekly menu of 35 options including popular options like calorie smart keto protein plus or my personal choice vegan and veggie you can also discover more than 60 add-ons every week like breakfast, on-the-go lunches, snacks, and beverages that'll help you stay fueled up and feeling good all day long. What are you waiting for? Get started today and get chef-prepared meals on the table in two minutes with Factors ready-to-eat meals so you can get back to doing what you love this spring. If you're looking for gourmet meals, try meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, truffle butter, broccolini, and asparagus. These are no-fuss, no-muss meals, and factor meals eliminate the hassle of prepping, cooking, or cleaning up. You simply heat and savor the good stuff. And you can tailor it all to your schedule. You can customize your weekly meals with the flexibility to get as much or as little as you need. And you can pause or reschedule the deliveries to suit your lifestyle. Factor is your solution for fast, premium meals without the need for cooking. And we're celebrating Earth Day all month long at Factor, so look out for the Earth Month Eats badge on the menu for the lowest carbon footprint meals. Here's what you do. Head to factormeals.com BN50 and use code BN50 to get 50% off your first box and 20% off your next box. That's code BN50, as in Broadway Nation, BN50. 50 at FactYourMeals.com slash BN50 to get 50% off your first box and 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Do it now!
0: With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere.
1: So Katherine Dunham is part of this era of this intersection between modern dance, ballet, and Broadway. Those three worlds come together and interact with one another in a way that I think most people are not aware of. Mm-hmm. People in the Broadway world are more aware of it, mm-hmm. but I think people in the dance world are much less aware of how both the ballet choreographers and the modern dance choreographers were involved in Broadway and influential on Broadway.
0: I don't know that they weren't knowledgeable of it, I think they just didn't care because they considered it a disposable art form that was not interesting. Then there's a lot of misinterpretation. So the, the dance people are not really looking at it very seriously. And then the audiences in the theater are looking at it, you know, with great interest. And DeMille is touted as having brought ballet to Broadway, which is really wrong. <laughs> Balanchine and many others had introduced ballet to Broadway.
1: Decades earlier.
0: Decades earlier, yes. But what DeMille did do was brought modern dance methodologies to Broadway. And that's really what she did with Oklahoma. There's a lot of mythology about her that she created, the dream ballet, that the dancing was ballet. And in fact, one of her strongest things that she did for musicals was female spectatorship. She really made a space for women. Prior to that, it had been male-dominated and chorus girls, scantily clad chorus girls. And DeMille really brought women to the stage who had depth and stories through the dances. And that's very little spoken about. And that's one of her primary contributions, as well as instituting the practice of the actor-dancer. Prior to that, they had been chorus girls in lines who were trying to blend into a line and diminish personality. Whereas DeMille is drawing out the individual and using the individual in the dances. People like Joan McCracken, finding ways to use these specific individuals to enhance the storytelling
1: With various body types as well.
0: Yes, very various body types. And she got a lot of heat about that.
1: She had to fight with people about it, right?
0: All the time. They were always telling her that the girls weren't pretty enough. They weren't thin enough. They would refer to dancers, piano legs, because the legs were muscular. They really were stuck in that idea of those lines, of chorus girls who were cookie cutter and who were defined by a very particular way of thinking about beauty, which was not only white, but also body type, height. It was very policed. So when DeMille came along, she did have to fight very, very hard. She said, it's not the shape of the leg. It's what the leg can do that's important to me and that was really revolutionary at the time that idea of displacing the chorus girl with the actor dancer that was something that every choreographer after her continued that was Probably her primary, most influential thing that she did for Broadway choreography was to introduce the actor-dancer.
1: And Jerome Robbins credited her for that.
0: He did. And they had a rivalry. He was always stealing dances from her to be in his shows. She was always angry at him.
1: She was always angry at most people.
0: I think she had good reason to be angry, though. I agree. As a woman in that field, it was tough. And she persevered. But as I talk about in the book, you know, as a director, I think the fact that she was a woman really did hurt her, whereas Robbins just took off as a director. And once he started directing, he never stopped. I think she wasn't offered the best projects, and when she was offered them, I think they pushed her around a lot. She was hard to push around, so she fought a lot, and then they would consider her difficult. So it was a tough time.
1: Agnes DeMille had worked with Martha Graham and studied with Martha Graham. How did that influence what she did on Broadway?
0: She was very, very close to Martha Graham. She didn't really work with her or study with her much, Graham didn't want her to because Graham told her, you have to do your own thing. Graham, I think, was smart enough to realize this is not a follower. This is a leader. DeMille revered Graham and they were lifelong friends. Who she was really close with was Louis Horst, who was Graham's musical director, basically, and who then wrote several books about Graham's Methods. And DeMille had worked with him a lot. And he really had an enormous influence on a lot of the choreographers at that time. And this was when DeMille was still in that modernist pocket. So she came to New York in the 20s. And she got involved with Graham, Humphrey, Weidman, and Tamiris. And they formed the Dance Repertory Company, I think it was called, where they basically rented spaces together. And they each did their individual Work. so they were self-producing often soloists or small group dances. Then DeMille ends up going to London, where she works with Marie Rambert at the ballet club and very closely with Anthony Tudor. So her training was really more balletic, which is why the moderns had a tough time with her, because they considered it pantomime what she was doing. And she danced very late in life because her family, who was a showbiz movie, family, they didn't want her to dance. They considered dance to be, you know, basically prostitution. So they would dissuade her from dancing. But when she started late, it was really more ballet. And then she was just surrounded by what was happening in the field of dance with these spectacular group of modern dance mavericks, and then went to London. And with both Graham and Anthony Tudor they're talking about psychology and using dance to express the psychological workings of character. And with Graham, that really gets seen in the inward turning and the contraction you know, her whole technique is based on that contraction. So then how DeMille takes that and then how whatever's going on with Anthony Tudor, if it's all happening at the same time as these things normally do, then they are working on it. And Tudor's really the one who creates the psychological ballet. So then by the time DeMille gets back to the States during the war, she's got all this information that's been cooking.
1: And as you say in the book, she came from a pantomime background. She grew up watching the silent movies being made. So it's so interesting that those threads all come together to make her the perfect person to do theater dance, unlike anybody had really done it before. And the Robins will be inspired by and go, oh, I I know how to do that, too.
0: Yeah, she's also raised by a playwright. And the family was very literary. So she did go to college. They insisted that she go to college, which was not true of most dancers at that time. Or most women. Yeah. And I think she maybe got her degree in English. I can't remember. And she was a brilliant writer. I mean, her books, everyone should read her books. So she had a real handle on how to tell a story. She knew how to do that. And probably her dancing was the thing that she was the least exceptional at. But she was so brilliant that she just learned how to do it. And as a modernist, which I consider her, her project was to invent movement. So how do I move the body in ways it hasn't been moved before? And of course, that's where all those methodologies come from. It's different ways of getting you in the studio and using different almost tricks and systems to get you to move the body in different ways. And that's what she was really interested in. Whereas Robbins really wasn't. Robbins really was about, I want this dancing to be exact to the time, place and characters. What would these people do? And consequently, he brought in a lot of help all the time but he was like a sponge. He could work with somebody or see something, and then he could make it his own in quite a spectacular way. She was less interested in that. She always had her point of view, not just in terms of movement, but also in what ideas she was trying to insert into the dances, which were not necessarily related to the libretto, but she could manipulate the libretto in order to get her ideas in. Whereas Robbins really worked strictly from the libretto and told the story of the libretto. To me, it always seems like he's working from the inside out and she's working from the outside in.
1: The thing that makes Agnes de Mille is Rodeo. Yeah. which she dances the lead in as well at at the Ballet Russe, which is part of something you go into in detail in the book, a movement that I don't think I've heard talked about very much, which is this Americana movement, and how influential that then became, not just with Agnes DeMille, but with so many others.
0: Yes, it was the period of Americana dances like Billy the Kid. Catherine Littlefeld had a company, which became Pennsylvania Ballet. She was exploring the Americana themes. You had Ruth Page in Chicago exploring the Americana themes. I mean, Graham also, that was the trend of that period. And DeMille really used it over and over, probably too long. She had the opportunity, Ballet Russe, they wanted an Americana ballet. She creates Rodeo. It's a spectacular success. She goes after Rodgers and Hammerstein. She gets them to pay attention to her. They hire her and she has this big success. And then she continues to do that, certainly with Carousel, certainly with Paint Your Wagon and Bloomer Girl. I would say the one that it's less so in is One Touch of Venus, which is a bit more, I could use the word sophisticated whereas the Americana work tended to have kind of a homespun, folksy expansion of the American West and idealistic view of America. One Touch of Venus has more of a sophisticated style in the writing.
1: And it's very urban. It's all about New York City and the effects of urbanization on people. It's a satire in a way.
0: Exactly, exactly. And she does a satirical ballet in 40 Minutes for Lunch, which I talk about in the book, which is about the hustle bustle of Rockefeller Center and how love is not possible any longer. And it's when Venus sings, I'm a stranger here myself. So she's capable of drawing on other forms, but that's her second show. That's the show she does after Oklahoma. And then she gets back to the Americana thing and has her greatest successes in the Americana dance and in the shows that had the Americana expression happening. But when she gets into the mid to late 40s, it starts to feel a bit dated. And by then, Robbins has taken over. And Robbins brings urbanism and jazz and Bernstein and audiences are just overwhelmed by him.
1: On the next episode of Broadway Nation, Liza Gennaro will share with us just exactly how Jerome Robbins took over Broadway and how her father, Peter Gennaro, became Robbins' co-choreographer on West Side Story. Please be sure to join us as we discuss Fossey, Champion, Bennett, Strowman, and Broadway's current crop of exciting and groundbreaking choreographers. Broadway Nation is written and produced by me, David Armstrong. Special thanks to Pals Mox for his help with editing this episode. To KVSH 101.9, the voice of beautiful Vashon Island, Washington, and to the entire team at the Broadway Podcast Network. If you love this podcast and want to delve even deeper into the world of Broadway musicals, I invite you to become a member of the Broadway Nation Backstage Pass Club. For as little as $7 a month, members will receive exclusive access to never-before-heard, unedited versions of every Season 2 interview and many from Season 1 as well. And this includes additional in-depth conversations with my frequent co-host, Albert Evans. Last but certainly not least, you will receive special on air shout outs and acknowledgement of your vital support for this podcast. To join, just click the link included in the show notes for this episode on our website at www.broadway nation.com. That's broadway (laughs) nation.com.